We, uh, <laughs> I hope you had a great week. We had a terrific week in our family. We had our seventh grandchild born this week, and uh, so excited about that. I think everybody's good. The baby's home and healthy and everything. That's actually our second grandchild in six weeks, and we've got a, another one due in April. So that, my family's multiplying, and uh, it's going good. So appreciate you being here. We're going to continue in Epic this morning, and uh, we're talking about uh, all these different individuals, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, these incredible real-life stories that God wove together to produce his story. And uh, thinking about Joseph that Kevin talked about last week, it's interesting, just since 2010, using radar imaging, they uh, uh, found the outline of, of a city called Avaris, and uh, we were able to determine the outline. And, and, and in that city, actually, there's a canal that comes to that city that the, in, if you translate it from the Egyptian, it actually means waterway of Joseph. And uh, this is a city that is on the location of a, a spot that we were told in Scripture was where there's a large Semitic population, where the Israelite people uh, later would serve as slaves there. And we believe that Joseph was there, and he actually had that canal dug so that they would have water during that famine that uh, Kevin talked about last week. And then also they found there a palace. Uh, I believe we've got a picture of it here, uh, sort of a reconstruction of it. Um, so the palace, the large, the white building up at the top. And then behind that palace, there are a number of tombs. Actually, there are 12 tombs. Hmm, 12. I wonder where that comes from. 12, if you remember, Joseph and his brothers, 12 of them. But there's one tomb that's particularly significant, and that tomb is that pyramid there on the left side. Pyramids were typically only used at this time for for, uh, pharaohs and their queens. But here we've got a guy who is uniquely singled out and honored. Interesting. 12, one of the 12 singled out and honored. And then when they went inside that tomb, they found a statue. Got a picture of that here. Sort of a unique looking guy. He's got the the color of his hair, the style of his hair, which I have to say is very fashionable. And the color of his skin. He's got a weapon in his hand that's over his shoulder there. All of that pointing to the fact that this person was uh, a from Canaan. And so, sort of unique. And then also, if you'll happen to notice that the coat he has on is a coat that's of multicolors. God's Word being confirmed through archaeology. I think it's a pretty cool stuff, huh? And, um, and what we see there is, again, this this great story being fulfilled. Um, when that tomb was discovered, actually, they, they didn't find a body there, you know, which we know even that is a fulfillment of Scripture. You know, you say, well, it's grave robbers. Well, no, it had never been opened before. And even if it had been opened, what they would have taken was the statue. But there are no bones there. And why is that? Well, because Joseph, remember, had told his brothers, hey, when the people, the children of Israel, they leave here, 
they're to take my bones with them. And that's exactly what happens. So very cool. If you know what happens after Joseph, there's 400 years go by. The people of Israel are multiplying there in Egypt. They grow in number. It's sort of like my family. And, 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 and they become powerful. And the Egyptians get feeling uncomfortable about how many of them there are. And so they enslave them to keep them under control, which brings us to Moses. Moses, what an amazing, amazing life Moses led. You probably remember some of it. You know, he's, he's born, he's, he's, there's a, the slaughter of uh, uh, is, Israelite boys at that time by, the, by Pharaoh. And so he's put in the Nile and there he's later rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted into her family. And then when he grows up, he's, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and he, and he kills that Egyptian, and then he runs to Midian for cover, where one day in the middle of nowhere, he had the experience with the burning bush. And God spoke to him there. He goes back to Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh to let the people go. He won't let them go. The plagues come. Pharaoh refuses until that final plague, and then he leads, Moses is able to lead the nation out of Egypt, gets them to the Red Sea, where God miraculously splits the sea, lets them go through, destroys the Egyptian army. Eventually, they end up at Mount Sinai, where God gives Moses the law. That's some amazing stuff. In fact, if you look in Scripture, there were three times basically where visible miracles occurred in, in sort of bunches. There's during the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. There's during the time of Jesus and the apostles. And then there's during the life of Moses. And those were some pretty fantastic miracles during his life. That's why we have got movies made about him. But just like anything else in Scripture, where things are going beyond what can be explained naturally, we've got scholars who claim that much of Moses' life as we know it never happened. The reality is, though, that their claims are not based on evidence, but largely on a lack of evidence. And there's a lack of evidence because they're looking for Moses and the Exodus at the wrong time period. I'll explain that in just a moment. But those that deny the Exodus happened at all say things like, well, we've, we've combed Sinai and not found any evidence of millions of people, like the Bible says, were there for 40 years. We can't find it. But that assertion is just not true. There haven't been many excavations in the Sinai, and we most certainly haven't combed it. Beyond that, uncovering objects buried for over 3,000 years is tough work. I mean, According, actually, they just had a, 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 a vehicle discovered not long ago from the 1973 Yom Kippur War there in Sinai, and it was buried in 52 feet of sand. 52 feet of sand in 40 years. Think about what would happen after 3,500 years. No wonder they have a problem finding it, but again, the main problem is they're looking for evidence in the wrong time period. See, Egyptian history is divided into Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, New Kingdom. And what a lot of scholars say is the Exodus, if it occurred, had to have happened later during the New Kingdom, and it would have occurred during the, the reign of the Pharaoh Ramses II. And going with that assumption, they look for evidence of the Exodus during that time frame. 
And, and guess what? They don't find any evidence of it. So they can say, oh, there's no evidence of the Exodus. There's no evidence of what we read in Scripture. That must not be true. But if they would just look a little further back, there's evidence for the Exodus. For instance, we have an Egyptian papyrus called the Brooklyn Papyrus that has a list of 100 slaves in that. And 70%, 70 of those slaves are Israelite names. Well, they say, well, those can't be Israelites because it, it's, it's too early. This papyrus is too early. It doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit. Can't be Israelites. But they're clearly Israelite names. They say, well, we've got no Egyptian sources that verify the biblical story. But some scholars who believe in an early exodus, like we believe, would suggest a document written by a scribe named Ippaware. Ippaware wrote this document, The Admonition of an Egyptian Sage, and in it he describes a series of calamities that happened in Egypt and the chaos that followed. We have one copy, but it's very vivid. Let's think about these similarities. He talks about water being turned to blood. He talks about the river turning to blood. He talks about livestock dying. He talks about barley being gone. He talks about blood being everywhere, that there's no shortage of the dead. He talks about wailing through the land. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And when skeptics are asked, well, where did all this come from if it didn't really happen? I heard a guy say, well, he had to imagine it. Imagined it? Yeah. Oh, think about that. Well, you want to talk about miracles? This guy imagined it, and then later it happened. You know, okay, this, is, this didn't, they can't accept it because this papyrus is from the Middle Kingdom. It doesn't fit their narrative. Almost all denials of the life of Moses as we know it from Scripture and the Exodus are based on a chronology that they assume. That city of Avaris that had that large Semitic population, at one point, as they're digging through and researching it, it appears like suddenly all these Semitic people all at once are gone. Wow, I wonder what happened. There's another town called Cahoon, a large amount of Semitic people there who were serving as slaves, and suddenly they disappeared. In fact, the goods that they were using were found in the streets and on the houses. They're just lying there. When they uncovered them from being buried in the sand, they were just left there like they were left overnight. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've also got a couple of inscriptions in, uh, referencing Israel. One that happens just after Ramses II died where Israel is named as a nation in Canaan. Well, if Ramses was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, there wouldn't have been time for Israel to become established as a nation to be referred to like it is in that inscription. Another one from 1360, where Israel is named as a defeated nation again. So there couldn't have been a long, a light, late date on the Exodus. These are just some of the reasons we believe in an early Exodus, not to mention the fact that the Bible actually gives us the timing of the Exodus. The Bible tells us when it happened. Solomon, we know, began to reign in 970 BC. 1 Kings 6, 1 tells us, now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. So that would put the Exodus in the early date of 1450. 
1450, that only makes sense. And, 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 and I think what's going on here is this. The reason people are questioning and want to put the Exodus later is because the Bible is so specifically clear about when it actually occurred. And they want the Exodus to be later, many of them, because they are motivated by this desire for the Bible to be inaccurate. So they've come up with this hypothesis that it occurred later, and then they can say, when people ask, well, have you found any evidence for the Exodus? No. Have you found any evidence for Moses? No. We've researched, we found, we've dug, we looked, there's nothing there. But if they'd flip back a little bit earlier, they'd see there's evidence there. There's a motivation there that calls into question the veracity of Scripture. The Exodus and all of the miraculous events that happened around it, it's all possible because of what happened in Exodus chapter 3. And that's where Moses is out in Midian, and he has this encounter with God, the burning bush encounter. If you know what happened there, Moses saw the burning bush that was, wasn't being consumed, so he went up to see what was going on, and as he got close, God began to speak to him and tell him Moses what he wanted him to do, but Moses wasn't up for what God was saying, so he began coming up with every possible excuse for not doing what God is telling him. You ever have a moment like that? Where when you're, you're providing every possible reason for not doing what you know God wants you to do, that's Moses. Let's take a look at it. Exodus chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Verse 1 says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. Horeb is uh, another name for Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to look. God called him, that he turned aside to look. God called him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is like, wait, wait a minute, God, wait. <laughs> you want me to do what? You want me to go to Pharaoh? First of all, Pharaoh's not real happy with me. You want me to go to Pharaoh? And you want me to, do, you want me to, to, to bring the people out? You may want to rethink that. I mean, who am I? 
Moses is probably thinking, you know, I was born a slave. I was born into a slave family. I was from a slave nation. Why would you choose to use me? I'm nobody special. Sure, I was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, but they regularly reminded me of who I actually was, where I came from. That's why I think when he goes out to, to, and sees this uh, Egyptian beating his Hebrew slaves, he comes to his defense because he knows those are his people. He's been reminded, and now this former slave is a fugitive, and he's out in the middle of nowhere. I've been to that area. It's one of the most barren parts of the world you'll ever see. He's out in the middle of nowhere herding sheep. Who am I? I'm a nobody from nowhere doing a nothing job. We know Moses even points out as this nobody his lack of ability to speak. In chapter 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, please. I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow speech and slow. God, please, please, not me, please, God. I can't talk. I mean, I'm just, I'm just not good at this stuff. You ever get feeling that way? Ever ask that question? Hey, God, I don't have any special ability. I'm a nobody from nowhere doing a nothing job. Please, Lord, somebody else. But Moses isn't done asking questions. And in verse 13, he said, Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What will I do? Sometimes, you know, we're like that too. I, I may know what God wants me to do, but I don't have the, all the answers. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to work out. If somebody challenges me or somebody questions me, or maybe they question my motives, God, what will I do? I just don't know. I don't have all the answers. Moses isn't done yet. Chapter 4, verse 1, Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Well, God, what if? It's like Moses is assuming the worst. He, he's, he's looking at the worst case scenario. I mean, what did Moses expect God to say at this point? Oh, okay. oh, oh yeah, you're right, Moses. <laughs> I didn't think about that. You know, he's just, I'll tell you what, let's just forget the whole thing. You go back to the sheep, and I'll come up with something else to get my people out. <laughs> now, sometimes we're, you know, we're in our, our mind, we're looking at what's ahead, we're not sure, and so we're questioning, and we're, and we're a little bit nervous about what may be coming our way, some decision we're going to make, or some difficulty we're going through, we don't know what the outcome is, and we're like, what if? What if it's this situation? As if God doesn't already know the situation. As if God doesn't have an answer. We imagine a worst case scenario. But with all these questions, what I want us to see is God's answer. Because essentially, it's the same every time. So when Moses asked the question, the first question, who am I? Look at God's answer in verse 12. He says, and he said, 
God's saying, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Notice God doesn't start out here. Moses asking the question, who am I? And God doesn't go, hey, Moses, I, I, I believe in you. Moses, you've got some good abilities. Moses, you can do this. You've got this, Moses. God doesn't go that route, does he? No. I will be with you. See, his answer isn't focused on Moses. His answer is focused on himself, who he is, his sufficiency, his provision. And then Moses asks, well, what shall I say to them? And God answers again, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. God says, you tell them, Moses, who I am. That's the focus, Moses, my memorial name. See, Moses, the answer is all about me. And then Moses asks the what if question, and God answers again. Chapter 4, verse 2, he said, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. You begin noticing a pattern here with these answers, don't you? Moses asks a question that's focused on himself. And God answers with an answer that's focused on God. That's really the point, isn't it? That's the answer for all of our questions. Because we often, when we're coming to God, we're coming with questions that are focused on ourselves. Who am I? God, I'm, I'm, what, God, what if this happens? What is this, why is this happening to me, God? Why? We ask questions that are all about us. And God answers with answers that are all about him. Boy, if we could just catch that. If we could just start handling life's issues that way. Our problems, our questions, the difficulties we have in life, the issues that we're dealing with. If we could just start realizing and be able to trust in and know, hey, it's, this is God's working. It's in his hands. He's got this. I don't, ha I don't have it. I don't have the answers. I don't have to have all the answers. It doesn't matter that I'm a nobody. It doesn't matter. God's got this. If we could just catch that, knowing that the answers are all about him. And you may know the rest of the story. Pharaoh refuses to listen. Exodus 5, verse 1 says, After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord? That I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. He, he's, he's confused. He doesn't know the Lord, but he's, he's right about something. 
his focus is on God. That's the whole crux. That's, that's what everything's hinging on. Who's God? The whole story's about him, the one true God. Pharaoh refused to listen, and so the plagues come. Water turned to blood, swarms of frogs, and then insects, and cattle dying, and a plague of boils, and then hail, and locusts, and darkness. And then the final plague, where we see God providing for his people in the form of the Passover, when they put the blood on the doors, and, and, and God spared them. But all of the rest of Egypt lost their firstborn. It affected everyone, including Pharaoh. So he finally let the people go. And they leave. And then he changes his mind. And he pursues the Israelites up to the Red Sea. So God's about to do this incredible miracle of splitting the sea letting the people walk through on dry ground. And, and so because it's an incredible miracle, what do people do? Naturalistic thinking, they question the reality of that. Now, there's, no, there's no way that that happened. Man, they'd point to the Hebrew, Yam Suf is the, are the words there for Red Sea, actually translated Reed Sea. And then they'd say, see, it's just a marshy area. The people... You know, went through and it's a shallow, marshy area. Of course, they had the, the problem of how did the Egyptians all die? But um, uh, they're not dealing, they just want to get, get rid of the miracle. There's problems with that. There's problems because as you come into the New Testament where they could have easily said, hey, Red Sea in the Greek, they read Sea in the Greek, they didn't, they said Red Sea. And and, and, and for a number of other reasons, we would say, I believe it was the Red Sea as we know it. I'll just point out that Exodus 14 is telling a story, story clearly describes a supernatural event involving a deep body of water that Israel crossed on dry ground and then later drowned the Egyptians. Whether the Israelites called it the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, the only way to look at that chapter and see a shallow lake or marshy area is to have a preconceived bias against the miraculous. Exodus gives us a clear understanding that the body of water the Israelites crossed was large and deep. The Red Sea fits that description. Regardless of the way those words are translated, the Bible is clear that God supernaturally parted a large body of water so the Israelites could cross, and when the Egyptian army attempted to follow, he destroyed them in an overwhelming flood. God's miraculous deliverance of his people. Moses, in Exodus 13, tells the people, Remember this day. Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Moses wanted them to remember. It wasn't Moses that brought them out. It was the powerful hand of the Lord. See, the whole exodus, 
This whole incredible story was all about God. Even in the covenant that God made with Abraham 550 years before the exodus occurred, God said to Abram, listen to this, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. That's exactly what we see happening in the Exodus. See, the Exodus was directed by the God of Abraham before any of the people were even in Egypt. Because the Exodus wasn't a story about Moses. It was a story about God. Moses was just along for the ride. And that's us. Our story is really his story. You know, we talk a lot these days about share your story, share your story with somebody. That's great. As long as your story is really his story. As long as your story is pointing people to him. Seeing him move. Seeing him provide. Watching his hand. And if we're nobody from nowhere, well, even better. How did Paul put it? Second Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I'm going through in that sense. It doesn't matter if we're nobody. It doesn't matter if we don't have all the answers. It doesn't matter what the what-ifs are that might happen. It's all in God's hands. We're just along for the ride. And it's all ultimately about Him. What a great way to be able to live life. Through the good, the bad, the ugly, to see him at work, to see him receive the praise. When we simply do what he wants us to do and trust him with, with it all and see him move. You know, I know some of us today are probably at a, at a transition point in our lives. We're trying to make a decision about whatever. And we're all concerned about all the ramifications. And there's no... It's legitimate for us to count the cost. I'm not saying we, we do things carelessly. But when we know what God wants us to do, and, and we're hesitant, because of all the what-ifs, or because we don't think we've got all the answers, God, my encouragement to you is trust God. Trust him, know it's in his hands, and see him move. See, and when he does move and brings you through that, remember the day. When he brings you through that, don't just go on like, wow, that's great, it worked out. Remember the day he brought you out. Remember the day. 
then my encouragement to you today is this. If you're going through a difficulty right now, something tough, or if you're trying to make a decision right now, that when you come out on the other side of that, make a commitment to remember the day he brought you out with his powerful hand. Here's what I want you to do. You guys up for this? Sort of. Okay. Here's what I encourage you to do this week. In fact, here's what I encourage you to do today. If, do, I'll tell you what, do this today at lunch. Okay? I don't know what you guys do at lunch after church on Sundays. But uh, a lot of times our family gets together. A lot of times they come over, all the kids come to our house. And Becky's fixed this meal. It's good, good stuff. And we sit down and eat. Here's what I want you to do before you take that first bite. Somebody around the table, remember the day. Talk about a day that God brought you out by his powerful hand. Look back at some time in your life. Maybe it was the day that he brought you from death to life, the day that you gave your life to him. He took you from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually. That's, that's the greatest miracle of all, isn't it? He takes you out from that to life. Remember, talk about that day. Talk about the day you were going through some loss and you weren't sure how you'd make it through. And, and yet God provided for you and, you and he brought you out with his powerful hand. Talk about that day. Share that with somebody around the table today. Two things I want you to do today. If you're having to make that decision or you're going through some difficulty, mark it down, watch for God to work, watch for him to provide, and when he brings you out, remember that day. But everybody, all of us who are followers of Christ can look back to a time and see where God brought us out already of some situation. Tell somebody about that. It was important for the children of Israel to remember. Why? So they, they'd have some other fact in their mind? No. So they could talk about it. So that God could receive the praise. So remember the day today. And if you've never trusted Christ, if you never come to a point of faith in him, and you don't want near what it means, what it's like to walk through life with him, friend, you're missing out. To see the hand of God move for you, to bring you from death to life, to walk with you every single day of life so that it's okay, it's okay, you're okay. When things aren't exactly working out or when thing, you're going through some loss, it's okay. It's all right because I can trust in God, the God of the universe who loves me and has his hand on my life. I can trust that. If you haven't come to a point of faith where you can turn to him at, at those moments, we would love to talk to you about that. And so we're going to pray and dismiss this service in just a minute. And you can head right back over to this room, room one. There'll be pastors there that will be glad to talk to you about how you can know you have a relationship with God. Believer, remember the day. Hasn't God been good to you? Hasn't he?
Remember the day. Talk about it today. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for loving us and providing for us, guiding us. We know that from the, from, from, from the moment, God, of life for us, you've had your hand on our lives. Many of us, Father, you, you, you took us from death to life. That was the greatest moment of freedom that could ever happen. You set us free, God. Thank you for that. And you've brought us through through many experiences for some of us, many times where we didn't have all the answers and we didn't know what, what was going to happen. And we had all the what ifs, God, and you brought us through. And we're thankful today, God, for your goodness, your faithfulness. God, I pray that you just continue to, to, to guide our lives. For those of us who are believers, God, that we would remember, that we it would constantly be on our minds and in our mouths, Father, to share, God, your goodness to us. And for those who haven't come to that point of faith, God, that they would make that decision. I, I, I play, pray today that they'd make that decision today, God. Their lives would be given to you. How good is it, God, to know you? We thank you. We pray all this, Father, in the name of our Savior. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. We'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday.